You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1370, with guest Michael Riss. Recorded Thursday, September 29th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are in some sort of speaker's lounge somewhere in Atlanta, may, maybe Virginia. I don't know. It's the, a far away from everything else, though. It's the biggest convention center, man. This place is miles and miles. It's like 10,000 steps every day easy. Was the World Congress Center here built for the Olympics, or was it before that? I have heard rumor of that. I, I don't remember. We were here for TechEd a few years ago. Right. And it was big then, too. But yeah. uh, And this is the second Ignite. The first one was in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, I do like this convention center better, and I like the location that we're in, too, because we're right beside downtown Atlanta. The yes. restaurants are great and so forth. Yep. The Chicago Convention Center, center was kind of a, away from everything. It was a bit of a, mm. a scuzzy area. So I'm not unhappy with the, what's happened here, but boy, what a big show. Yeah, it is a big show. All right. Well, uh, I don't really have much to add for small talk today and lucky for the listeners. So <laughs> let's, just, let's just move on to better know a framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what are you doing? All right. Well, this is coming out November 3rd. So way back in September. Oh my goodness. September 19th to be exact. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew about this. But you probably saw about this. There was a record-breaking distributed denial-of-service attack that was reportedly delivered by over 145,000 hacked cameras. Cameras. IoT devices. Interesting. Yeah. And this represents the biggest distributed denial-of-service attack up to this point ever levied. And so, the story that we're following here, Ars Technica, and this is at 1370.pwop.me. Uh, it says, last week, and this is from uh, November, security news site Krebs on Security went dark for more than 24 hours following what was believed to be a record 620 gigabit per second. Just let that sink in for a second. Denial of service attack brought on by an ensemble of routers, security cameras, or other so-called Internet of Things devices. Nice. Yeah. So that's really all I have to. I could stop right there. That's enough. Well, and I've I've actually been reading Krebs's own analysis of the DDoS attack that happened to him. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you how bad this attack was. Akamai pulled out of supporting his account. Wow. 
So there, he got a call from Akamai, the largest content delivery network in the world, saying, hey, look, the DDoS attack that's hitting your site is crippling our servers, which means it's crippling all these other websites that depend on us. We have to ditch you. Wow. Which it's almost unprecedented. Like the intersecurity net. Insecurity internet? I don't know. Something what, like that. What do we call that? The internet of insecurity? <laughs> yeah, the internet of uncertainty. I'll include a link to Krebs' site himself. It's, it's very interesting that this... You know, was it just a demonstration? Was yeah. it actually hot? I mean, Krebs is an interesting cat when it comes to security. But. but you know what's interesting about this? People think that, you know, the things I talk about with the IoT designs that we talk about here are a little over the top. In other words, every IoT device can't be a server, can only be a client. Right. And then having the keys burned into the silicon, things like that, having it manufactured so that it can't be easily, you know, tricked with SD cards or whatever. Um, these are all really important things for just this reason. Yeah, we're seeing the side effect of so many more devices on the internet is so many more yeah. attack surfaces to attack. They really think this could be the new normal. Anyway, that's what I got. Uh, sorry to say, but, you know, maybe we'll talk ab about data lakes and uh, Internet of Things with Michael when he comes in. Who's talking to us now, Richard? Uh, grab your comment off of show 1327, the one we did back at NDC Oslo with Jamie Dixon and Evelina Gabasova. We were talking about R. Mm -hmm. And uh, the data lakes came up in that particular conversation as well. And just, you know, great conversation all around about data management. And uh, uh, Jay Meyer said, the paradigm shift discussion towards the top of the show reminds me of a massive SQL proc that I had to write several years and jobs ago <laughs> that dumped 7 million records into a table. And I love this comic because it's like he was writing his own ETL system. Yeah but via stored procedures. Mm. Written like an object-oriented programmer to, would write it, it took 16 hours to run. Oh. Optimized for set base, it dropped down to two hours. Hey, good job, man. Talk about a denial of service attack. There you go. Denial of service on your SQL server. <laughs> yes, denial of CPU attack. And he, and But he also goes <laughs> on to admit, the process of rewriting that stored procedure for that optimization was much improved as a result. However... The architecture that led to this monstrosity is a topic for another discussion entirely. And the good news is this proc only ran once a year. Yeah. So, but talk about a data loadout process and so forth. And just, I, some ways I feel like when I think of data lakes, it's just getting away from this kind of arcane behavior. Quick story is back in the 90s, I had a co-located SQL server at a friend's house who was running an ISP in his house, right? This kind of thing. And then it turned into a business, but he was slowly gathering business. And he asked me if I would be willing to share my server with another client and, you know, get some extra revenue and stuff. And I said, sure, no problem. They didn't seem like they were, and he said, yeah, they just upload a few records a day. It's not a lot, but they do have a lot of data. Okay. So then I'm running my stuff, I'm running my stuff. All of a sudden my web server just freezes up and I, I don't know what's going on. And I can't remote into it. And come, to, I call up and come to find out they were running an ASP page Ooh. that dumped the entire database into an ASP client, into a browser. Nice. So they were running their report, <laughs> which they only ran once or tried to run once, but it was in a tight loop in an ASP page or something, brought the server to its knees. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. They don't have a lot of data, but, you know, and they did, they just upload a few data. Yeah, okay, <laughs> Except sure. Except for this little report, just this one report. Yeah. What are you doing? Yes. 
So, Jay, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We use them for bait. Just <laughs> think about it. Data Lakes. All right. This is how this show's going to go, huh? <laughs> you know, it's a bad joke when I tell you to think about yes, it. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Late on a Thursday of a whole week of Ignite, <laughs> we're going to do Data Lake jokes. Okay. I'm, I'm ready. Let I'm me introduce waiting. Michael. <laughs> You're Mike- ready, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Riss has been doing data processing and query languages since the 1980s. Among other things, he's been representing Microsoft on the XQuery and SQL design committees and has taken SQL Server beyond relational with XML, Geospatial, and Semantic Search. Currently, he's working on big data query languages such as Scope and USQL when he's not enjoying time with his family underwater, on the ski slopes, or at autocross. Autocross? Is that like motocross except with four-wheelers? No, it's uh, your... Driving a car pretty fast between cones. Oh, between and try, cones. And try not to hit them. Like nice. slalom. Yeah. And at the same time, you're trying to text and answer no, phone calls. No, you're trying to focus on the driving. <laughs> yeah, you are. Okay. Because <laughs> that would be really Im- impressive. Yeah. But you can collect telemetry and then use that for demos. Sure. Yeah. Still well, planning to do that. At and some that's point. what you're doing. That's <laughs> and great. It, it, you know, one of the things I've, I've I've done some of those driver training and things yeah. where, where you find out what a difference it makes to properly balance your car and do a turn. Yeah. That you can turn faster and tighter at higher speeds and not dramatic speeds. We're not talking a hundred miles an hour. No, it's like yeah. if you hit 60. Yeah, it's you're fast, really yeah. smoking, right? And, and you don't want to go too fast because once you get behind on those sets of turns, you're in trouble. Like yeah. it's going to come apart on you. So you like to find activities that generate a lot of data. So you have good demos is what yes, I'm hearing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is an interesting problem. That's actually, a great. Getting enough data for your great. data. Lake. We have done a show about data lakes before. We were even on uh, Windows Weekly. I yep. got to talk about data lakes right. after build. But I, we should probably start at the beginning because I don't know that everybody really is up to speed on this thing. It's been around for about a year. Yep. Tell us about data lakes. Well, um, if you start with the paradigm first before we talk about the product, uh, data lake is uh, kind of a newish approach on how to do um, analytics of mm-hmm. data. Um, if you take traditional data warehousing approaches, uh, you normally start out with schematizing your data at the beginning. You create a schema to try to answer the questions that you know that you're going to have to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you get your data in, you basically process the data, put it into that schema, and you're fine and set until five days or five weeks or five years later mm. when you come back and say, well, I need to have some other questions answered right. or I might want to figure out what questions do I actually have to sure. ask so that goes into the cognitive part and, and, and the point there is really powerful that when you're building relational databases you start with the schema which is based on the questions that you want to ask and the answers that you want to get and if you don't know what those answers and questions are going to be you're you're kind of out of luck. You're locked in, yeah. You're locked in. And so the data lake is now basically the kind of philosophy that you have a highly scalable store where you put your data in, in the original format that you receive it in. So Mm. be that log files, be that images, be that CSV files, or it might be even a database itself as well. And once you have that loaded, then at that point in time, you can start exploring your data. So data scientists can go and try to figure out what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. If you know 
what questions you might want to investigate. You can still schematize it and create your data mart as a secondary step. And, um, but you can still go back five years later and still go back to the original data and create a new data mart to answer the new questions that you are interested in. Now, is it that you don't have a schema in terms of relations and indexes, but you, do you actually define what fields mean? Like do, or, do, or can I just take raw data and throw it in there? Am I at a disadvantage if I just take the, the values of, of the data that I collect and throw it in there? Or do I need some sort of like maybe JSON or something that well, says name? That depends address. on what your original data is. Like, yeah, yeah, if you have a JSON document, the more information you can provide, right. the more semantics you can provide about the data, the easier it is to schematize it at a certain point and, right. and, and, and post queries over it. But let's assume I have my images. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. maybe today I just want to see how many of like which images are green and which images are red in major color. Yeah. But at some point in time, I might want to go and find out like what is uh, a car and the mountain and the flower in the right, image. Sure. And, and while I have the image in its original format, I can do that. But yep. if I have done the feature extraction a priori and put it into a schema at that point in time, yeah. the original data is lost. Right. That makes total sense. And that's a great example. So it really, you know, remember that old story? How many times have you said this, right? The solution to many technical problems is another layer of abstraction. One more layer of abstraction. You're, you're just formalizing a layer of abstraction away from the ETL process. So that Correct, yes. It's not that the data we look at is not post-ETL. It's yeah. pre-ETL. Exactly. And then so one part of the data prep or data cooking process now inside an analytics component on the data lake is basically then doing the case-by-case -case, uh, data transformation that normally would be done by an ETL process. Right. So when I think of this, it reminds me of a document database where I've got a very loose schema, if no schema at all, and just throw documents in there. But whereas... And the difference I'm seeing in my mind is in a document database, I at least want a group of documents to all kind of look the same, like have the same shape. Whereas in a data lake, maybe I could throw all sorts of JSON files in there, let's say, and images and, you know, wave files or whatever I want, just all sorts of different shapes of data. Yeah. Is that accurate? Uh, correct, yes. And I mean, some document databases might go towards that direction. So it's kind of a little bit of a progression here. Mm. Um, if you have completely unschematized XML or JSON documents, then you are kind of a data lake as well. But um, most of the time there, you have an intrinsic structure yeah. in the data format that you can design a query language around like XQuery yeah. uh, on XML mm -hmm. or JSON, whatever the JSON query language of the day is. Right. Um, but in this case, you basically really have to go and do extraction. So like in Hive parlance, you do surdies. In USQL parlance, you build extractors to get the schematization done at query time, basically. Um. But there's got to be some order to the data you're bringing in, right? Is there a typical way you organize the data lake itself? Most likely, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, if you do log files, you might have um, some folder structure that kind of tells you... Chronology? Um, chronological, but maybe also um, containing information about which uh, what cluster they? it is sure, and, yeah. and, and maybe what market it is or, or what language, uh, you, depending on what you're logging. 
And um, that structure then you can exploit when you do queries um, right. by putting what we call file set uh, queries on top of it, where you then can schematize part of your folder structure, for example. So it becomes part of the data that you're then querying over. Is there ever such a thing as an index in a data lake? Yes. you. I mean, you can, depending on what your query language supports, you can have, um, of course, standard clustered indices and so on after you okay. cook the data and move it into a more cooked form. Cook the data. <laughs> what do you mean exactly by that? Um, cooking the data is kind of a parlance that just means uh, you take your uh, original data in the data lake and you start uh, schematizing it, cleaning it up, let's Got say. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of the typical stuff that you might do in an ETL. Yeah. And then Prepping, at the end, cleaning. at the end, you feel that the data is now in a format that I want to kind of persist as a copy, right. potentially. Like you can keep it virtualized, but then you have to do the cleaning every time you run the query again. Sure. Right. Or you virtualize it, and when you virtualize it, you get additional benefits of choosing distribution schemes and clustering so that your scale-out processing over the data um, gets additional benefits to do partition elimination or um, filter um, pushdowns. Right. So maintaining uh, this metaphor, yeah. do we have a recipe for figuring out this <laughs> cooking that, you know, it's these chunks of data distributed this way to run it quickly with these filtering rules, like you are going to want to rub out some rough edges on some of that data and sort of yeah, keeping remembering it, that. It, it is definitely scenario-based, mm-hmm. uh, but the language and the tooling that we provide as part of our analytics framework on top of the data lake. And this is uSQL? That would be uSQL in right. our case. Um, should give you like the tooling to be able to do that and, and uh, obviously some best practice guidances around, let's say, well, if you have point location type queries like A equals B, then you might want to have a hash partition. If you have range queries, you might want to do a range partitioning Mm. or distribution, things like that. And I like the idea that we can build up sort of a knowledge base of how we massage our data efficiently and get good results from it. And don't forget how to do that so that when more data comes in, we're applying the same strategies over and over. Yes. And one of the important aspects here is also when you do that is, is that you actually like uSQL sounds like SQL, but yes. um, one of the important aspects is is that most of that data, because it might be just images or 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 some like not so clean data, let's right. say tweets, but you're not interested in the tweets, you're interested in hashtags and mentions and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You have to do post processing of the data, and right. at that point in time, having um, kind of a more expressive procedural expression or functional expression language, let's say, mm-hmm. um, that allows you to do your own custom code extensions uh, becomes very important. And so that's kind of one of the strengths of uSQL gives you then the ability to put in your own custom domain-specific code, and we will basically take care of scaling it out for you. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at NCache. Ncash is an extremely fast and scalable open source distributed cache for .NET. If your application needs to scale, you need Ncache. Ncache is actually better than Redis for .NET developers. Check out a Redis comparison online. And a new open source product by the Ncache team is NOSDB. That's N-O-S-D-B. This is a NoSQL database for .NET, and it outshines MongoDB for .NET developers. There's a comparison with MongoDB online, too. Download both NCache and NOSDB from alachiasoft.com. That's A-L-A-C-H-I-S-O-F-T dot com. 
Now, one one of the promises of data lakes, of course, is with big data, you just it's very easy putting stuff in. Right, you can yeah. get started right away, and uh, then you know you you I guess according to you, you cook the data, yeah. and uh, when it's when it's ready, you know, ding, the timer goes off, and you can now run a query against it. And the promise is that no matter how big this data is, it's going to be optimized. It still depends a little bit on the data. Let's say if you have one big, humongous XML or JSON document, then yeah. scaling that will be a little bit harder than if you have reasonable-sized set right. of documents. But um, in general, the design is, is that you basically um, have the data partitionable so that you can scale out the processing over it right. yeah. and scale it out to thousands of nodes. Like we have in our own data lake inside Microsoft, which is uh, what we built for originally for Bing, but now it's used by everybody. We have uh, jobs that operate on petabytes of data awesome. and scale out to thousands of nodes. But when we're talking about Azure data lakes, yes. we're scaling out across Azure instances for that. Yes. Although these are these are platform as a service instances. This is not yeah. you're setting up VMs or anything like Correct, that. Correct, yes. And so you're basically just setting the... Uh, and I mean, there's an interesting piece of math here about yeah. do I save money by running fewer instances for longer or do I save money by firing more instances for shorter? Yes. And I mean, currently the, the billing model, and that might be subject to change, of but course. right now it is such that um, you basically pay for what we call an Azure Data Lake analytics unit, which is um, basically one degree of parallelism mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. your job times uh, the hourly rate, basically, times the time right. in hours. So that means if you have a job that runs with 200 nodes in, let's say, um, one hour, then right. you pay 400 bucks or whatever the going yeah. rate is. Right. But if you can run the same one uh, potentially with uh, 100 nodes in maybe one and a half hours or something like right. that, then you're going to save money. Right. And we have tooling that kind of shows you how the job would execute if you're going to change the number of allocated resources. And I got to presume this is some kind of curve. Right? One is never enough, but your yield diminishes uh, exactly, you know, as you yeah. increase. Yes. And you can't go from 400 nodes to 4,000 nodes, and now you're done in six minutes. Uh, most likely not. If yeah. you have such a highly scalable problem, I mean, there are some very, very edge cases where that sure. might be the case. But most of the time, what you do is you basically have a high degree of parallelism when you extract your data. Yes. And then you do processing, and some of the processes might introduce uh, basically a funnel effect, mm -hmm. like ordering statements or so. Right. In which case, then you basically lose the ability to scale that out, and right. you might scale out later again. So it's yeah, a little a bit of a complex uh uh, or, My uh, experience with MapReduce has shown that mapping larger and larger isn't a big deal, but reducing larger and larger gets to be high overhead. Yes. So you suddenly go down to, all right, now I have tens of thousands of units each working on 50 items. Yeah. But the consolidation of that is a nightmare. Yes. So it, it, it's very interesting to think in terms of those curves and say there's sort of an optimal yield and then throw in pricing for that yes. as well. So um – uh, you may or may not have these at the tip of your tongue, but I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested to hear some case studies in terms of uh, how much data was stored and how long it took to do a particular query because performance is uh, yeah. usually an issue. Yeah, I mean, I can't disclose uh, customer data per se, but I can, for example, just mention one demo I gave here where okay. we did run a job on our um, own um, Azure Data Lake 
telemetry data. And uh, the job was um, decomposed into about 60,000 vertices, which are kind of the units of work that we kind of can schedule as individual uh, processes. Okay. I just like being able to say vertices when I'm talking about work. That just makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, sound, sound, sound makes it sound smart. so smart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can charge more when you say vertices. Yes, yes yeah, I know. Yeah. Notice to uh, too easy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that job was run with reading about 55 terabytes of data, writing about, about 50 terabytes of data, and hmm. running four and a half hours. Yeah. Um, overall, though, if you would like, so that's the elapsed time. If you would look at the CPU time equivalent of mm -hmm. it, was about 770 hours or so. Wow. So, yes, wow. you can scale. And that was run with uh, 200 nodes. Wow. Um, so And how many terabytes again? Uh, 54, 55 input and 50, 51 output. Wow. Interesting. And it's also right you to realize you're just reorganizing Im the information. Yeah. You're not suddenly massively reducing it either. Yeah. Well, not always. Like, it depends <laughs> sure. um, Every on, case on the scenario. Is. If you are preparing something for a report or so, then you might be reducing it, mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. But if you're just reshaping the data into something that might be more appropriate for uh, doing your next step, which is the reporting, at that point in time, you might be uh, collapsing uh, mm -hmm. less and be basically just reshaping the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And again, it's th these applications vary very wildly, right? Yeah. You know, everybody's got a different approach to this. It has yeah. some value to it. I have uh, poked around in USQL a bit, and yeah. uh, I grabbed some links to some tutorials and stuff. I mean, it, it's organized like SQL, but yeah. it is not SQL. No, it's 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 kind of. Uh, I mean, some people argue the U is, uh, co we called it U SQL because the U is after the T. That's not really the case. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like C, we kind C of sharp. definitely took some uh, learnings from both uh, the SQL world as well as from the uh, big data language that we had internally uh, on Cosmos, which is called Scope. Um, and we basically noticed that on the one hand, you really want to make it easy for people to use a declarative language to make it scalable and optimizable. Mm -hmm. And basically the reigning king of the hill there is SQL. So if you, if, if somebody who knows a SQL dialect comes to the language, it will make it easy for, for that person to pick it up. I mean, you see that happening in all the other big data languages as well. Like Hive is now getting more and more anti SQL standard. Sure. Um, Spark is adding a SQL dialect, et cetera. It, um, it is a good language for expressing sets. Exactly. And this mm. is a set problem space. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then, however, what we did beyond that was uh, a few, I think, um, extensions that I think are important for big data processing. One is making it way easier to do extensibility than in any other SQL language that I know. Mm -hmm. And that was achieved by basically making uh, the type system be C-sharp in our case. Right. And then um, you can just basically the expression language becomes C-sharp. Mm -hmm. um, and you can just register an assembly, reference the assembly, and uh, that is written in any .NET language. And you can just like run your user code do what that you way. Do. I and think F-sharp would play very nicely in this space uh, too. We have a, a few people that were very upset that we didn't use F-sharp <laughs> as the expression <laughs> yeah. language. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they can really write their functions uh, and load the assembly and, and basically yeah. do the same thing. And with just using C-sharp as the bridge to the column of the exactly. F-sharp function. Yes. Right? And I, and I presume 
using that's Rosalind under the hood, right? This yeah, is a classic injection of that language. It is uh, probably the most complex Rosling application after Visual Studio's own use. Nice. Wow. Yeah, no, I, to I totally get that. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. You bet. It's time to follow my data processing chain of comedy. Uh-oh. First, I have the idea for a joke. <laughs> I go to the fridge, see what's there, take my vital ingredients, mix them up, put it in a pan, cook it, and then I take my eyes off the time until the joke is burnt beyond recognition. <laughs> you know that smoke alarm? That is not a timer. <laughs> the food is done before that particular alarm goes off. I wonder if it's possible to burn data. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, okay, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Seth Richards. Oh, congratulations, Seth. Golf clap yeah. for you, sir. Golf clap for Seth. And uh, Seth just won the D Experience subscription from Developer Express just for being a member of the fan club. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Michael, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, any technology today, what would you buy? Well, of course, I'm tempted to say get an Azure subscription. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, figured you would. I think what I will probably get is is I will get something um, that uh, helps me with uh, my photography skills oh. and so on. You Maybe, are not alone, sir. That is a very uh, popular choice, and uh, potentially uh, some some better drone than I have right now. Are you oh, a Canon guy or an Icon guy? I'm a Canon guy right now. So, Mar yeah, so. Five D Mark IV, anybody? Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. That's yeah. very pretty camera. I'm not sure the five thousand bucks. So, are there that, any though. other brands besides Nikon and uh, Canon? There's Sony. Uh, yeah, also. there's a bunch, but yeah. the, the Nikon Canon thing is the big rivalry. Yeah, I see. You know, so generally, it's like Red Sox and Yankees. Yeah, if I say <laughs> if I say Canon, you're a Nikon guy. You're gonna you're gonna hiss at me, right? Yeah. But if you're a Fuji guy, like our friend Scott Stanfield, when I say yeah. Canon or Nikon, he goes Fuji. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But they're uh, the big competitor on like the lens mounting thing. Yes. And when you talk about the diversity of lenses, you know, yeah, yeah. often like with the Sony bodies, they have a Canon adapter. You yeah. know, that's, that's sort of the norm, which is why it ends up with that kind of rivalry. But I've, I've and normally the lenses are more important than the cameras. I totally agree. Yeah, and that's certain, what they you know, say. I'm doing my best not to be completely obsessed with cameras because I have so many friends that are, it's like, I'll let them spend the money. Yeah. But, that new Mark, that Mark four, uh, four body, I mean, it's 3,500 bucks retail, yep. you know, you, and you really should be putting at least $3,000 with a lens on that body while you're at it, which is a heck of a lens, depending on what you're doing. Yep. Are data lakes a good fit for IOT projects? 
Um, that depends on whether, like, if you do a lambda architecture where you basically have a hot path and a cold path, then the data lake. And what does that is, mean exactly? Okay, so that means um, you have your IoT events coming in. Yeah. Now, what you normally want to do with that is you want to have a hot path, which means you want to basically know exactly what's happening and do real basically real-time analytics or near real-time analytics on it directly. Mm. And then you have the cold path, which is basically you also want to store all those events inside a repository. Or some data reduced lake. version of them. No, well, actually, my argument is you want to have everything. You want to have everything? that's part of the data lake philosophy. Okay. You keep everything so that you can make use of it later. I yeah. see. Just in case. Just in case. And uh, hopefully the store costs is small enough that, that you can afford that. Okay. And um, you basically then uh, put that into the cold path and then I would argue that the data lake would be an, a perfect place to do that. And the other part is you basically do some stream processing like stream analytics or something like right. that. Right. So some stream analytics and, and for processing maybe some sort of on a on a smaller interval maybe every day maybe every hour you would do some you know analysis and and reducing of that data and then move that somewhere exactly. else exactly and then yeah. you do the cooking based yeah. on a hourly cooking. or weekly or whatever your interval well, is the big thing we talked about this before with iot data is like you're sampling a temperature sensor every second mm. yeah. and so but the temperature only varies you know every couple of hours yeah, yeah. you do want to know exactly when that happened yeah which to me speaks more of a deduplication problem. You have a tremendous number of identical yes. rows. And now, of course, that depends on how you build up your pipeline. You can do that as part of the pipeline, so you only put the data into the lake Yeah, uh, that that is like the delta, or you do it as a post-processing step in the lake, which is probably not what I would do. I would probably do it on, uh, during the processing. And that phase. was sort of what I was getting at yeah. when I say you, you cook it a little bit first, you know, yeah. take the, take the re a reduction of it or the deltas, yeah. uh, if that's what you're looking for. But understanding that if you only put the deltas and you need that data for something else later on, you, you're out of luck. But it is derivable. It's, yeah, as long as it's derivable, I think yeah. it's okay. But yeah. And as long as we're not burning through... <laughs> Lots and lots of money. That's how you burn crazy. The that's yeah. how you burn the data. Yeah, <laughs> that's how you burn it. That's right. <laughs> you see, yeah, anytime you actually you actually do a lossy compression of data, yeah. now we're talking yes. about some problems. But yeah. yeah, I mean, just efficient storage, deduplication, and over on Runas, we've been talking about this a lot. Yeah. The deduplication technology has gotten very fancy, and it saves yeah. a lot of disk space because yeah. we're burning a lot of disk space these days. Yeah. So yeah, I'd be very you know. You think about IoT sensors, where now you're getting streams of data from millions of sources yep. and trying to organize all that. Like, thank goodness for the data lake, because I yep. do not want to transactionally store all that stuff. Yes. So is that typically what happens with these projects? The data lake is sort of where things go for a certain period of time, and then the data gets extrapolated and then maybe put somewhere else, like a reporting server or... Yeah, that is often what happens. So yeah. right now, um, for example, Azure Data Lake has uh, has only batch mode, but other data lakes that you, let's say, you build it on top of something like HD Insight, which is the Hadoop kind of yeah. mm -hmm. uh, cluster service that we have as part of uh, Data Lake. There you can do interact analytics directly with Spark or Hadoop, um, like Hive or so. At that point in time, you may just keep the data inside the data lake itself. Yeah. But in other cases, you might want to move the data into a reporting database like a SQL database or SQL data warehouse for doing your kind of final reporting. Sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's that's a common pattern, definitely, that we see. I'm back, I'm back at extraction. Yeah. I get, do you pick Hadoop because you're good at Hadoop? 
versus, you know, any other number of ways to extract this data? I think there are, like, in at least in our context, I think there are two or three um, questions you have to ask yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one definitely is, is what is the expertise of your... Skill set matters. Skill set matters, yeah. yeah. So if you have people that have uh, a big kind of uh, background in Java and, and uh, Hadoop Pokemon Zoo, as I call it, mm-hmm. um, you definitely have... Uh, you should look at HD Insight for, yeah, for yeah. doing your And it's a very powerful set of tools, yeah. right? It takes a while to get your head around it, but yes. boy, you can do a lot. Do you have customers doing big IoT projects with data lakes? Uh, yeah, we have a few that are currently mainly in POC phases right now. Yeah. Uh, that are doing um, IoT um, around um, all kinds of devices. Yeah. Uh, transportation, mm. um, kind of car companies right. and things like that. Very cool. Um, on the... Um, on the other side, uh, in terms of uSQL or, or so, yeah. uh, the, the other question is, is so, and do you go obviously with uSQL if you have, let's say, good SQL knowledge and mm, maybe right. some, some uh, .NET C Sharp knowledge And the point as doing, well. if you know your way around Hadoop, you don't have to use uSQL. Yes, to get you, you don't, but you can also combine them because sure. they both yeah. operate on the same data lake, which right. is another advantage of a data lake compared to a database system because you can use the tooling that you're kind of familiar with. Right. right. So different yeah. skill set people yeah. can, can all work against the same data set. That's a very compelling point. Then um, the other aspect is right now HD Inside is a cluster service. So hmm. that means you provision your cluster, you tell us how many nodes you want in the cluster, and then you own it. Yeah. But it also means that you that you pay for it even if you're not doing any uh, processing on it at that sure. point in time. And we still charge you a little bit for like reserving the capacity Keeping for the instances alive. And, and you can't really scale on demand as much. Mm-hmm. Um, while in the Azure Data Lake um, analytics context, what you have is a job service. So that means you basically, for every job, you only pay when you run the job, right. as I explained earlier, and you can on a per job basis can basically tell us how many resources you want to use right. for a job, which then also is kind of impacted, obviously, by the distributability of the data. Mm. So if you tell me I run the job with 500 nodes on data that can only be scaled out to 10 nodes, then mm-hmm. you're getting still yeah. overcharged. Right. right. Um, otherwise, it's basically pay as you go, scale as you go. Right. Um, which is a little bit a different kind of experience than than with the H inside cluster. Well, this is what. This is what elasticity is all about, right? Yeah. I can turn it down when I'm not needing it. The, I could see why the having done some time in a dupe, once you've got a set distributed across a bunch of yeah. nodes, you're lo- sort of loath to turn it down because it yeah. takes time to right. push that back out again. So yeah. that's why you need to charge me for it. Yes. And I don't want to go into a lot of details about pricing, but um, I get the feeling that uh, storage in a Azure data lake is probably going to be a little bit more economical than storage in a, say, a relational database, a SQL Azure database. Is yeah. that a good assumption? Well, that's, that's a little bit an apple to orange comparison. That's like yeah. even on on-prem, it's cheaper to have a file system than have uh, an MDF file True. containing your database yeah. data, yeah. primarily because you're paying for all the processing capabilities right. that come with the database system. Mm-hmm. So, it's a little bit an Apple storage comparison, uh, yep. definitely. I think I would always look at not just the data storage, but I would also look at the compute cost. Compute time. And, yeah. and time. And uh, if you are really focusing on storage, then yeah, of course, uh, don't, don't use a database uh, yeah. because that's going to be, you're paying for all those capabilities that you're not yeah. going to use. What about compared to something like a blob storage where there's no compute available? Um, or or I DocumentDB, think, for example. Yeah. 
I think document DB is uh, kind of a kind of sitting in in that phase in between. Yeah. Like they they do have a pretty good scale out uh, story for uh, storing data. They have a much more limited uh, query model and processing model right. um, as part of of their offering. Um, I think that Blob Store, for example, like. Azure Data Lake, uh, the analytics part, can access data in Azure Blob Store as well, yeah. as it can in like stuff that lives inside SQL Server databases, yeah. for example, in Azure, not on-prem yet. Yeah. And um, the the cost factor there is is that Azure Blob Store has a few things now that they are adding, but it doesn't have like a file API. It's mm -hmm. not. It's it's a key value store. Mm -hmm. okay. um, it, its security model is not integrated with Azure Active Directory, okay. so you can't really set ACLs uh, easily at the file and folder level. Gotcha. I mean, uh, and and so you have to deal with like shared access keys and and uh, storage account keys and things like that, okay. which is a little bit more of an arcane way of of doing things, in my opinion. Um, what's the relationship between the analytics part of data lakes? Uh, that you were talking about and um, machine learning, Azure machine learning and predictive analytics? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. And actually, it's something that we are currently working on, kind of uh, getting the things a little bit closer together. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, the Azure machine learning service is basically its own service. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so you would basically have data in the data lake that you then would like feed into the model generation or into like uh, applying the model. So but that can happen directly from the data lake or do you have to have an intermediary step? Well, an ETL or? that's actually a good question that I wouldn't know. Uh, yeah. In the worst case, you would probably have to use a sure data factory to sure. like do the data movement. Yeah. Um, but uh, eventually one of our goals is, is that we can like uh, scale out the machine learning part from within a USQL script. That's kind of what, so where great. we want to go. But uh yeah, it's a little bit. It feels like that. to me right now, I would be staging that using USQL to sort of build up the data mart set yeah. Yeah. that then the predictive analytics would grab yes. onto. Or yeah. that's, that yes. would be the thing you would now use R against. Yes. And that makes sense anyway. Another layer of abstraction. Yeah. yeah. I knew that was. I mean, what bothers me is using USQL to, to pull a set of, of 50 terabytes of data, ending up with 50 terabytes of data, yeah. and then having to haul that somewhere yeah. before I can start yes. doing my analysis. I'd rather yes. it's there and you just use yeah, it. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the reasons yeah. why we're looking at that. Like in yeah. our internal uh, big data system that I mentioned, Cosmos, we have MLX, um, machine learning extensions in the we internal language. We did a language. show on Cosmos a million years ago at when it was an MSR project. That's Billions the first time I've heard that term in a long time. <laughs> Billions and billions of years that's, ago. That's yeah. another cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was a code name for an MSR project about yeah. data analysis that I, wasn't it one of the ones that was sort of shoved this sub to shot or was that Dryad? Dryad was the was uh, uh, execution Dryad. framework. The execution framework. And then Hadoop sort of appeared in the, in the team and it was like, well, actually what, we what happened was the MSR guys did Dryad and, yes. um, the Dryad framework is a little bit more powerful than MapReduce only. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they went to conferences and uh, kind of the questions they got was, well, does it do what dry, uh, does it do what MapReduce does? Can right. I run my MapReduce jobs on it? Yeah. They said, well, yes and no, because it's like more powerful. It can do other stuff. You have yeah. other operators. And, but everybody was so gung ho. Yeah. On MapReduce that kind of the industry forgot, except we actually use them internally. Right. And now if you look at uh, Spark's uh, fra execution framework, 
they actually refer back to Dryad as mm-hmm. kind of the inspiring uh, paper that they they built their stuff on. So they kind of get a late uh, uh, pardon and uh, mm. research and so to speak. Interesting. That's yeah. really cool because I, we did a show on Dryad as I do, well. Remember, I remember. Yeah. It's like wow, this is so neat. And yeah. it didn't. I don't think it came true the way they planned, but yeah. it's obviously still around. And yeah, and now Azure Data Lake Analytics is basically using uh, Yarn as the kind of uh, resource manager, mm-hmm. but then the execution framework is basically it's, Dryad based. It's really wild to see all of these things coming into the Azure um, milieu because eventually everything is able to talk to everything else, you know? And uh, so one day we'll have the ability to use services in Azure that we didn't even think that we could pair up with with data lakes. Well, in some ways it's like Dryad's behind the wall. Right, it's just a service that you use. Yeah, yeah. You you, it's not it. it's not exposed except through USQL um, and its uh, extension framework. Sure, yeah. yeah, which is just it sort of speaks to as we move into this services lifestyle, yeah. you don't actually care about the technology under the hood; you care about the results. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, whether that runs in containers or VMs or or Linux or or Windows yeah. or or Arduino boards or whatever, yeah. uh, you don't really care except for that you get the performance and scale at the cost that you are willing to pay. Yeah. And then it's up to us uh, on the service provider side to make sure that we can do our business models with the costs that we have to pay. Right. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And it was uh, recently some articles, again, we're doing a little time shifting here. This is coming out and later November, in November, yeah. and here it is in late September, they were talking about the the, uh, the FPGAs, the, the programmable gates yes. that are in most machines that are running in Azure. Yeah. Stuff that you wouldn't see in a conventional server, yeah. but give optimizations for these kinds of workloads. Like mm. with these, that's definitely a lot really of uh, opportunity there with that and with GPUs and so on to mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. improve performance and scale even more. Yeah, um, it's just uh, since we talk about scales, and you guys mentioned earlier the um, denial of service attack there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so one question I often get asked is around the extensibility model in USQL is why can't I connect to external web sources from my C-sharp code? And the answer is just what you talked about earlier. Just imagine that you have uh, data in, let's say, terabyte range, Mm -hmm. several million or billion rows, and you do an IP lookup uh, somewhere on a web service. And you do that scaled out uh, from, let's say, a thousand nodes within Mm -hmm. Azure Data Lake. Right. Um, can you imagine what that would do to that service? Yeah. Let alone 145,000. Brutal. So, so that would be like, um, yeah, that would be millions of calls just within like a few minutes to that, to that resource, which would probably make them just shut down the Azure, uh, your sure IP address yep. range uh, and blacklist it. It's so. just a, yeah, it's just a denial of service attack. Yep. However, well intentioned, that's yep. what it'll turn into. Well, I sure I'm glad that you guys are thinking about that stuff <laughs> to protect <laughs> stupid old developers like me from yeah. shooting myself in the foot and everybody else too. What are the data loading mechanisms available to fill your data lake? Um, so right now we have uh, right directly at the lake, we mm-hmm. have um, web HDFS and uh, REST APIs mm-hmm. that allow you to basically go against it. Uh, it is a newer version of the web HDFS API that uses OAuth. Right. So yeah. we're using OAuth, not Kerberos. So no FTP? 
Uh, no mm-hmm. FDP Yay. yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I know, sure I, people are asking for it. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yes. Of course. It's just such a terrible protocol. Yeah. Like, it's really yeah, it dreadful. Yeah, yeah, but if they have existing ecosystem tooling, then yeah, they yeah. might want to make make the life easier. You, do, you don't want to turn down a customer in the yeah, end. It's exactly. just authenticated FTP is yeah. such a bad protocol. It, you like, know it's what? so hard it, to get it right. It did its job in the day, and yeah. I don't think the people who wrote it had yeah, any no, idea? It was, no, that it was, it was, it was probably be. some reason. Like I, I remember the times. It was like yeah, researchers, like college kind of research yeah. thing. They yeah. were doing something to make it file was, sharing. It was yeah. for a kinder, sweeter internet than That's the one right. that exists today. Yeah. And it just wasn't built for yeah. the the kind of encryption and security and yeah. authorization that we absolutely. Exactly. Need. I think it was John Postel that wrote the RFC for that for yeah. FTP. Mm-hmm. Is you know one of the guys who did SMTP and NTP and. Yeah. All those old protocols. When data sets get really extraordinarily big, when we're talking about yeah. many terabytes of data that's yeah. on board in my yeah. data center, are there physical transport methods? So there are physical transport methods as well. I think that you can basically ship uh, disks. Mm-hmm. Uh, other ways are, obviously, you can get a fast track connection, so you get higher speed connections into the data center directly. Mm-hmm. I took an accession at, uh, here at Ignite about that. Yeah. I mean, you literally can pay to have a piece of fiber laid into an Azure data center. That is your wire to a rack in an Azure data center. Hey, money talks. That's it. But if if latency was your problem, this is the ultimate solution. That's pretty awesome. Then the other thing that you have, obviously, is like, let's say our like tooling that we have on top of that. So mm-hmm. PowerShell, for example, we have a PowerShell upload script that gives you, that actually uploads the files in parallel. Right. Because, um, as it turns out, the files are not just one humongous block. They are like mapped into extents. And sure. so you can like create the extents and then stitch the files together in, uh. in a later step or so. So that's an, another way. And then at the, even higher level, we have data orchestration capabilities. So, like uh, Azure Data Factory, for example, can mm-hmm. move data f- mm-hmm. both from on-prem sources as well as from uh, sources in other cloud environments right. uh, in into the data lake as well. And it, well, and it's the this does encourage you to do more work in that space in the first place. Yes. So start in the cloud, stay in the cloud. Mm. Yeah. But I, you know, I was I, the only time I've ever shuffled drives like that. It was the initial loadout. Yes. We have many, many, many terabytes, and we're just like, how do we get started? I don't want to burn all that pipe time. Yeah. Mostly time, not cost. Yeah. But it's worth getting a bunch of drives and shipping them in. Do you ever get requests to participate in really weird projects? Something that would make you go, well, you want a what? And I, you don't have to name names, but there's got to be something. Um, right now, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, we might have had some people that were kind of trying to basically use Data Lake as a cheaper, um, interactive data warehouse solution. And I at see. that point in time, I have to say, well, sorry, we don't have interactivity yet. So you mm-hmm. can't yeah. do that. But the, the really kind of weird stuff like Bitcoin mining yeah. or, or other stuff, I haven't seen yet. And real time uh, astrology charting. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, nothing like that yet. Although, <laughs> come on. I mean, uh, if, if there is a market for that, uh, and they're I'm, willing to I'm, pay. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not picky about that. <laughs> Might be an interesting demo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an interesting problem. And I, I mean, this also gets into. Because my experience with data warehouses, and I'm an old Ralph Kimball guy, yeah. you know, back in the day, is that once you got a data mart in decent shape, the immediate reaction is we're missing more data. Yes. Like that, that was the forever cycle. It's, well, we really got to get this other data source in and this other, because they always had some questions in mind and no data mart could answer it to their satisfaction. Yes. Uh, 
And I think that's exactly what I said at the beginning was yeah. that this is kind of giving you an extension of the paradigm that allows you to always add the data yeah. uh, more in a more agile way. Hey, you know, salt and pepper to taste, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need no accounting for some people's taste. <laughs> right. Some people want to put the grape jello in there. Yeah. Go a, right ahead. It's actually a good idea. I don't know that's <laughs> true, but it, it's certainly an interesting technology. Um any sense of what comes next? Like what needs to be added still? Oh, know? yeah. So we are currently in public preview yes. uh, with all the components except for HD Insight, which is already in uh, in GA for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so we expect to be in uh, GA with those inside US data centers uh, before the end of the year. And then uh, one thing that we are looking at is, is uh, global expansion. So we'll put it into like European data centers uh, or sometimes next year, early next year. Great. Uh, that's actually an important thing, as we notice, because yeah. a lot of European data customers, sovereignty. they want to keep their data that's in right. Europe yeah. and they don't want to have it in the US, which I, as a European, I kind of understand. Totally understand. Totally understand. And yeah. there's another thing that they're talking about it in, in uh, here at Ignite was these new German data centers that are actually run by a German entity yeah. for these data security yeah. rules that the, that the, that the country Germany it's is actually insisting on. similar to like what we do in China where we have yeah, uh, data centers thing. that are run by Chinese companies. It's mm -hmm. a great solution. Yeah. And then we have, um, so, so that's one thing. Then the other thing obviously is, as I mentioned, that we're doing batch. So one of the things that we're obviously doing is there's a, a lot of feedback already on our feedback page about new capabilities and new new functionality that people sure. want to see. So That's we actually are kind good of news, right? Which yeah. is good. They want um, more. Exactly. So we are going to uh, definitely take a stab at some of that. And then another thing is it's definitely interactive. And you mentioned machine learning. Right. And uh, another one is uh, potentially looking at a better streaming integration. Right. Oh. That so, would be the other case yeah. here is continuous streaming. So, so basically all the all those kind of uh, big uh, workload buzzwords, uh, we're kind of definitely looking at uh, how to enable that. Now, time frames, I can't tell on any but, of know, that right now. Sounds like job security to me. Yeah, yeah. We, we wouldn't even ask. We know better, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like you've got to prioritize features. You've got to yeah, scope exactly. them out and so forth. Yeah. One thing that I'm also interested in, like, yeah, we modeled now you see like SQL, but some of the things I'm thinking about is is um, if you look at the SQL language, um, it it is very popular and very widespread. But mm -hmm. there's there's you can reduce the concepts of the language into like a more composable expression layer. Mm -hmm. So that, for example, if you just want to do a join with a filter, you don't have to put a select there because yeah. you're not really selecting stuff. Like you want link to does it sort of backwards. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, also when we were doing XQuery, we basically started out with the from clause and yep. then uh, did the, the rest. But I'm not necessarily talking about like necessarily switching clauses around, but also make make some clauses not necessary yeah. if you don't want them. Yeah. And um and that's definitely one aspect. Another aspect is is making it easier for people to write their assemblies in quotes now uh in other languages like JVM and mm -hmm. Python and JavaScript, mm -hmm. whatever. Um and we you can do that today, but you have to do a lot of work of deploying the runtimes yeah. as part of the script. You have to do the your own C sharp wrapper to mm -hmm. marshal data types and data back and forth. And if we can find a way of doing that automatically for you, we have a metadata service. So mm -hmm. when you register your assembly, we can say this assembly is C sharp and this one is a Java char file and this one is a Python script. Yeah. And uh, we will then deploy the runtime for you if you reference that, and we will do the translation of the data type. Wow. Sounds all very easy, 
delves into detail. Yeah, no, as, and it, as is always the case with these things, it is the small bits that are the mm. hard things. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thanks very much. This is very exciting, and I wish you lots of luck. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, yeah, good um, stuff, man. Good luck with your show as well. Oh, thank you. We've had a good time doing it, and uh, another great show. Yeah. Thanks. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.